Luke 19, we're going to look at verses 28 to 48. And the message is entitled, The Triumphal Entry of Jesus. It's hard to give it any other title um, through the years. But um, our Lord is, uh, in his last week of ministry, as you know, Passion Week, uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, he's headed for Jerusalem. He knows when he gets there, he's going to be arrested, tried, crucified. He's going to die. He has said... He has set his face steadfast from the confession of Caesarea Philippi back in chapter 9, verse 51. Headed for Jerusalem. He's been teaching, evangelizing. Um, he is now going to arrive. And as he enters in this triumphal entry, and of course it's from God's perspective, not from man's perspective, uh, because of the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, and the prophecy, Matthew 21, uh, Mark 11, uh, John 12, and here Luke 19, all four record this event. That's how important it is. The Lord said, um, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, uh, eternal life, and they are they which speak of me or testify of me in John 5.39. Jesus said, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written to me to do your will, O God, in Hebrews 10.7. John the Beloved in the book of Revelation 19.10 says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The red thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus Christ. He is it. He's the fulfillment. He's the Savior of the world. He's the only way we can get to heaven, the only way we can be forgiven. He is it, period. No room for anybody else. Very, very, very clear. And so as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, according to the Scriptures, he fulfills a threefold um, office as Messiah, and it's given to us here in our text. Let me read to us uh, 1928 on down. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a cold tide on which no man has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosening it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the coal, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosening the coal? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own coals on the coal, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near, the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called uh, to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, uh, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Here on Palm Sunday, the threefold fulfillment of his Messiahship is as follows. First, the triumphant king, verse 28 to 40. Second, the weeping prophet, 41 to 44. And thirdly, the righteous priest, 45 through 48. A threefold fulfillment of his ministry. We begin with the triumphant king, 28 to 40. Notice in 28, Jesus now is going to Jerusalem having corrected the disciples' wrong understanding about the coming of the kingdom. Don't disconnect this from what preceded. It says, when he has said this, it looks back. He went ahead going to Jerusalem. The disciples were sure Jesus was going to establish the kingdom, arriving to Jerusalem. That was it. That's why he delivered the parable of the minas in chapter 19, verse 11. Because they had bad theology. 
The disciples had just heard Jesus proclaim salvation to Zacchaeus. They probably thought this is what's going to happen to everybody as soon as we get to Jerusalem, establish the kingdom. The disciples had asked who was the greatest in the kingdom between each other. Uh, Luke 9, 46, uh, 22, 24, and John 13 also. Uh, James and John had asked for the left and the right hand in his glory. And Jesus said, are you able to drink of the cup and be baptized? Oh, yeah. Had no idea. They thought they were going to reign. They even sent their mommy in Matthew twenty twenty one to make intercession. Jesus said no to her. Now their agenda for the kingdom was self-centered. Not to serve, but to be served. It wasn't until after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. Now the parable of the minas focused on the noblemen who went to a far country to receive a kingdom and return. And so he said his servants' delegates to... Um, to be entrusted doing business till he returned in, uh, in Luke 19, 12 and 14. The nobleman represents Jesus, the servants, his disciples, and those that hate, the citizens that hated him were the Jews, of course. Now, the nobleman then returned. He called all his servants that he left with some, the menace to give an account of their faithful stewardship in verses 15 to 27. He rewarded those who multiplied the menace equally in proportion to their multiplication, and he gave him authority over some cities, 15 through 19. And then he rebuked the wicked servant because he hid it in a handkerchief, buried it. And he said, you should have at least put it in the bank to collect some interest in it. And, um, and th- that's the contrast. Now, that's the beam of seed of Christ that he's talking about. Uh, you find that in uh, 1 Corinthians um, 3, 11 through 15. Um, in Romans 4, 14, 10. And 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And the motive is, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that's the motive of our judgment, why and how we did it. Not how much we did or what we did, but did I do it for the glory of God? Did I do it out of the love of God? That's what we get rewarded for. Otherwise, it becomes just crispy critters. It's burned up in the fire. Now, in 27 of chapter 19, um, those who rejected him were slain at, at his coming. And of course, the first application is to the Jew, and he's going to prophesy the destruction as we go move through here. And secondarily, to all those who reject Jesus Christ during the age of grace, of course. Now, that brings us to 29. There's the connection. Jesus came from Jericho to the Mount of Olives. It came to pass, he was near Bethphage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, called Olives. And the route um, is, um, is an ascent. You always go up to Jerusalem and you go down from Jerusalem. Uh, you're about 800 feet below sea level there at Jericho. You're going up to about 24, 2,500 feet above sea level. It's a steep climb. Um, this is uh, from the city of uh, Herod, the new Jericho. There were two. And his son, Archelaus. And, um, and so they're probably traveling on the old Jericho Road that we used to travel in the 70s, 80s, even the early 90s. That was real steep and whiny and very dangerous. Um, the same one that the parable of the Good Samaritan was described for us and told um, in, in Luke's gospel. Um, and so Bethany here, this is on, on the Mount of Olives. They're coming in to the backside of it. Uh, Bethany means house of dates, and it was two miles east from Jerusalem on the east side of Mount of Olives. And Bethphage is house of unripe figs, and it was in the same vicinity, but we're not sure the location exactly. Now, remember Solomon built houses for his pagan wives there on the Mount of Olives in First um, Kings eleven seven. And uh, Zechariah 14.4 also tells us that when Jesus returns for the second coming, his foot will touch the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two and a river will flow from the, from, from the throne in Jerusalem, one to the uh, Dead Sea and revive it, and the other one to the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? So the topography is all going to change when, as soon as he comes back. Um, now he's coming over the top. He's going to be over the top. That gives him a very panoramic view. Uh, and, and it'll be described here. When you get to the end of 29 to 34, Jesus commanded his disciples now to bring a colt. Uh, Jesus de- declared to them the, to go and to find this colt. Um, go into the village opposite you where you, when you enter, you will find a colt tied. The two unnamed disciples are sold in all three synoptics. They're not named. The colt is a very specific one, a young donkey. Another specific that could be tied to Genesis 49, 10 through 12 with the prophecy of Judah, the tribe of which Jesus came from. But it's going to be more specific with the Zechariah 9, 9 prophecy, as we'll see. Now, in 30, notice Jesus describes the particular cult that was to be brought to him, one that never anybody ever sat upon, loose him and bring him. Who in their right mind would sit on a cult that wasn't broken or tamed? Nature yielding to the Creator here. 
Interesting. He borrowed a womb that had never been touched. He borrowed a colt that had never been ridden. He borrowed a tomb that had never been occupied. Total holiness in terms of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Notice Jesus declared the objections of the colt's owner and their response in 31 to 4. Um, Jesus is prophesying. And if anyone asks you, why are you losing it? Thus you should say to him, because the Lord has need of it. That's prophecy. And Jesus is God. He knows everything. Nobody has to tell him anything. And the two went and they found the coal exactly as he said. And then when he protested, they, they responded exactly as he told them to. And Jesus had prepared the heart of this man. Most likely he was a disciple of his. Jesus had many disciples besides the 12, the 70, many. He's been coming down with a great crowd six months already, heading toward Jerusalem. They're arriving. And Matthew and Mark confirmed the particulars of all this that we find in, in Luke's record. But Matthew adds, a donkey, the mother of the colt. Okay? No contradiction. Uh, we have uh, two blind men and Jericho that we've seen in Luke. The others focus on one. Mark gives us the name Bartimaeus. No contradiction. They're just supplements to give you the whole picture. We've seen this before many different times. Okay? Now, John says at this point in John twelve sixteen, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him that they had done these things to him. So again, their, their, their perspective was not all that clear about what was going on. 35 to 38, Jesus accepted worship now as king of kings. This is the only time Jesus allowed public praise and worship of him. The disciples and people acknowledged Jesus as king in 35 and 36. In 35, the disciples conducted themselves as servants. Listen. They were obedient. Then they brought him the colt to Jesus. They were humble. And they threw their own clothes on the, on the colt, submitting to Jesus and serving Jesus. And they set Jesus on him. Three marks of discipleship. Now notice the people gave reverence to Jesus. And as he went, they spread their clothes on the road. The imperfect tense here indicates they kept casting their nets on the road to prepare his route, welcoming the king to his city, the city of God. They were indicating their submission and their honor to this king. Notice 37, the many disciples praised God the Father for Jesus. The event occurred as Jesus began descending. So he's come up the backside of Olives. Now he's over the crest of Olives and then in front is the city of Jerusalem. If you go all the way down, you cross the Kidron, okay? And so he sees this panoramic view. And if you ever go to Jerusalem with us, Israel, we leave Jerusalem to last. We always end up in Jerusalem. So when you come around the bend, the last bend, and all of a sudden, Jerusalem opens up the golden. And you see the temple, you see the wall, you see the new Jerusalem behind it. It's incredible. The descent again leads you to the Kidron. When we used to go in the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s, that, that descent road that he's going to go down was just dirt road. It was very slippery. Now it's blacktop. So it's still steep, but it's a little safer. All you got to worry about is the cars are not going to hit you now. Um, Jesus would walk again across the Kidron when he gets down there as he would um, go over to Gethsemane and the blood of the temple that would be rolling down through there. And the water. And he was the Lamb of God. John 18, 1 tells us that. Uh, Jesus would ascend also from the Mount of Olives after the resurrection, 50 days afterwards, um, uh, when uh, he was with the disciples for 40 days and he ascended up on high. Okay? The day of Pentecost, 50. And that's Acts 1, 9 through 12 as he ascended up. Um, notice at the end of 37, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. With a loud voice. This was, uh, this was, I mean, in their perspective, the kingdom was going to be set up. Have you ever, have you ever been so excited by something you find out it's the wrong day? Or, or it's not what you thought it was? Uh, this is what's about to happen here. The 12, the 70, and all the rest of the disciples have been following with him in the crowd. The reason for the rejoicing and praise of, of Jesus was for all the mighty works that he had done. What they had seen. The mighty works that God did through the signs of the arrival of the kingdom. They said the kingdom's here. 
They, they were ready for it to be established. But um, it was in word and in deed, but also in great power. And they anticipated the kingdom, but they were wrong. They were absolutely wrong. Sometimes you believe, I believe God is directing, guiding, speaking to me. And I am certain, and I find out a day, a week, a month, a year. I was wrong. We're not perfect. We don't know. So we judge everything by the word. We wait upon God to make sure he directs and guides us. Look at 38. The many disciples of Jesus worshipped him. They acknowledged Jesus as King and Messiah, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord Yahweh. The word blessed, as you know, means to speak well. We get our word eulogy from it. When funerals, you do eulogy, you speak well of somebody. Um, Funerals are the place where more lies are told than any other place. Um, The perfect participle means has been and is now blessed by God the Father. It's the Father who blesses the Son, being the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. They acknowledge, notice, The event was the outcome of peace and celebration in heaven. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This reminds us of the angelic announcement at his birth. As they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Luke 2.14. Peace on earth because he was born as the savior of the world. Now man can have peace with God and with man and about his sins. But now this is the tail end. Now... It says it's death. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest because he would make atonement for the sins of the world and man would have peace with God. Heaven would be at peace with them altogether. Here's the efficiency of the atonement. He's quoting Psalms 118 that really speaks of the day of his second coming. It's short-term fulfillment, long-term fulfillment. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will be glad and rejoice in it. Now the prophecy again, short term, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, short term wise, as the Lamb of God. And long term wise, uh, he will come back as King of King and Lord of Lords, as Revelation 19, 16 tells us, as he destroys and defeats the armies of the world to set up the kingdom. The other Gospels add Hosanna in the highest, meaning save now, calling him Son of David, King of Israel, saying, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, affirming and convinced that the age to come, the golden age of the Jews, had arrived, but they were wrong. There was going to be an intermission. There was going to be a prophetic uh, clock stopped for the age of grace until the second coming. Now the people, notice, were witnessing a prophetic fulfillment, but of such detail, and we find that in Zechariah 9.9. Listen to it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, meaning humble, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know what the chances of all those particulars being fulfilled? There isn't enough zeros after a one. (laughs) He fulfilled over 300 in his first coming. The prophecy is tied to the 70th week of Daniel, the last week. As you know, 69 of the weeks were fulfilled with a multiple of sevens, multiplying 69, 483 years. And days, it's 173,880 days based on a 360 biblical calendar year of Genesis, not the Gregorian calendar of 365. And therefore, this last week that's left is seven years, but it won't happen until the church is removed. Now, the first 69 weeks were fulfilled as Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in troublesome times found in Daniel 9, 24 to 26. On March 14, 445 B.C., if you project that straight forward, 483 years or 173,880 days, it falls on April the 6th of 32 A.D., exactly when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this cult. Coincidence? If you want a scholarly work on that, get The uh, Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. I believe it's in the bookstore. You can get it. Um, if it's not, let go out of print and shelf so nobody has good stuff. That's what they're doing to a lot of Christian books that are real good. Letting them run out and shelving them. Stuff like that. Like the government buys patents, shelves them. Nobody gets them. Exact same thing. 
Now, notice 39 through 40. Jesus testified to the appropriateness and the timeliness of his worship. By the way, Luke is the only one that, ha- that, that records these two verses. He's the only one. The Pharisees attempted to stop the worship. Some of the Pharisees called him out of the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were um, uh, the hypocrites. The Sadducees were the other groups, the materialists. The Herodians were the political group. And um, uh, they were the enemies of Jesus. They were self-deceived and they deceived others, drawing them to themselves. And the Pharisees were in the crowds always, as we've seen through the Gospel of Luke and the others, envying the praise that Jesus was receiving, jealous of the glory that was being given to him because they did not acknowledge that Jesus Christ was Messiah. They um, feared losing their position with Rome. And they were very fearful. And so these Pharisees were commanding Jesus to rebuke his disciples, implying that what they were doing and worship was wrong. But they were right. Implying that they were mistaken that he was Messiah, but they were right. They weren't wrong. In fact, John twelve nineteen says that the Pharisees said to themselves, You see that you accomplished nothing, accomplishing nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. They saw their position slipping through their fingers in danger that Rome would shut them down. Look at 40. Jesus declared that even nature knew the prophetic event. Jesus demonstrated that he was the authority. But, I, but he answered and said to them, I tell you. He never quotes anybody. No rabbi, no philosopher, no poet. I say to you, ultimate authority. God speaking here. Jesus testified to the rightness of their worship that if these should keep silent, implying that they would not, implying their error by their request. Jesus revealed that even nature knew the prophetic event of this day. The stones would immediately cry out. A day by divine appointment, a day that was a rebuke to them for not accepting Jesus as their Messiah. You remember that God had given to David a twofold prophecy about the, uh, his son Solomon and the Messiah that would sit upon the throne of David when David's son Adonijah attempted uh, to usurp the throne of David when he was dying. David commanded that Solomon be taken and placed on his mule and that he ride on it to Gihon as king. Likewise, Jesus here fulfilling rides to Jerusalem as king on a donkey, presenting peace. The donkey and the mule, peace. The horse represents war. And here he is, the prince of peace. But there will be no peace on earth until the prince of peace comes. People always say, pray for for peace. It's not going to happen. We'll have periods of peace, maybe one year to a hundred war. (laughs) I think that's what it works out, something like that. We are bad news. You and I are one of two individuals, either servants of the king occupying till he returns, or we are those who will not have him rule over us. One of the two. It's a choice, and each has the freedom to make that choice, but we're not free to escape the consequences. Each of us will be tested throughout life if we consider ourselves Disciples of Jesus Christ. He has given to us uh, uh, promises in the divine nature to escape the corruption of the world. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4 tells us that. Um, to live godly. Uh, or whether we will serve Him only um, to get things from Him. Um, sometimes people are in such bad situation that this is their last choice and they do it. And then once Jesus gets them on their feet, it's see you later. Do you give worship to Jesus for who He is? Or just um, what you can get from Him? Um, what He can do for you? Or whether it's just in the situations that you um, feel you can't handle yourself. Uh, he wants you to trust Him for all things, even the things that you think you can. Are you willing to reject the fulfillment of Zachariah's prophecy and to say it's coincidence? It is a choice. Uh, Joshua twenty four fifteen. he told the people, he says, 
choose you this day who you're going to serve. If, if be the gods of your fathers on the other side of the river or, or, or Yahweh. And Jesus Christ, is, his name means Yahweh is salvation. Um, the Greek name of the Hebrew name Joshua, of the contraction Yahweh Shua. And it is a choice. Despite the incredible accuracy of this prophecy and details, stands the decision whether we believe it is divinely inspired and directly from God, or that it is not, it's mere coincidence. And that's a choice that people make all the time, every generation, regarding this prophecy. The triumphant king was Jesus. No doubt about it. Notice, secondly, comes the weeping prophet in 41 through 44. In 41, Jesus perceived the city and was moved first with grief. The panoramic view of the city overwhelmed Jesus. As he drew near the city, he wept over it. Literally drawing near, reaching the crest of the Mount of Olives, he burst into sobs. The word weep means to mourn or lament. The same word is used of John in Revelation 5.4 as he sees nobody worthy to loosen the seal of the scroll. And one cries out and says, Weep now for the line of, the, of the line of Judah. He has prevailed and he's worthy to loosen the seals of the scroll. Notice Jesus wept over the city realizing that he would be rejected. In view of the city God loved, Jerusalem, the city of God, in view of all the prophets that she had stoned, in view of her refusal to be gathered as chicks under a hen's wings, rejecting their Messiah. Wow. You as a parent, you will experience it at one time or another as you raise your children. You're trying to do the best. You want to make the right decision. You're trying to guide them. And there will be times and points in your life where they will think that you are their enemy. And you, because you've lived and you have fallen on your face so many times, know that the road they're taking has much destruction. And your motive is love and care, but it's interpreted wrong. You and I did the same thing. Hmm. Verse 42 to 44, Jesus proclaimed the reasons for his weeping. In 42, the high privilege of Jerusalem requires of her great accountability and responsibility, being personified as a person. Listen to him. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem is personified as a person, even as wisdom in the Proverbs in the opening chapters. Due to the privilege and honor it had not lived up to, if you had known, even you, the city of God, the city of David, the holy city. Due to the willful ignorance concerning her appointed time and benefit, listen, especially in this your day, the things that made for her peace. They possess the very day in the scriptures prophesied to the nation of Israel about the coming Messiah. But they fail to recognize and accept him. The message of the angels of peace on earth towards men and goodwill meant those who accepted the will of God, the Messiah he sent, Jesus Christ, Luke 2.14. Due to the fact that they would suffer the consequences, here's the contrast, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The error's tense indicates the end of their blindness, hid completely. They Stepped across that line. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. Romans 11.25 says. Jesus said they would not see him again until they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in Matthew 23.39. Wow. Notice in 43 and 44, the Lord Jesus proclaimed a denunciation of the city. In view that the city would be given over to judgment. For the days will come upon you when your enemy will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. The picture is of the army surrounding and like a rope that just keeps tightening up. They come in, starving them, 
waiting them out. No water, no food, nobody come in, nobody come out. The greater dangers within the city as bands roam around and kill people, steal and murder and rape and everything else. You see, we've never known anything like this. But you just have water and food, be scarce. And you're going to find out what you and men are made of. We're nothing but animals. It's the survival of the fittest. And Jesus speaks about the great famines to come. When no one can buy or sell without the mark during the great tribulation of the Antichrist. Times as never have been or ever will be. As we look around the world, we see things shaping up and falling in line. The armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem. Titus, the general with the 10th legion of Rome. And she destroyed the city and leveled the temple. Um, it says there, the, the devastation. And level your, with your children within you to the ground. Uh, women ate their children. Cannibalism. Um, their city would be conquered and demolished. Uh, the people in the city... Um, all of them. They're, you can't separate the people from the city and the city from the people. They are one. Jerusalem is the capital of Jerusalem, of Israel. Always has been. Nobody acknowledges except the United States, but the United States doesn't speak up. But it's always been the capital. The temple would be destroyed piece by piece. Not one stone would be upon another. As you know, fire was set to the temple. The gold melted. They had to take the stone one by one. If you go up the steps to the fellowship hall, as you come to the top, look to the right, the first picture. You have a picture of a big, huge boulders, big old blocks of stone piled up there. It's a cheesemaker valley. Those were dropped by the Roman soldiers. They're the original ones right there in the cheesemaker valley during the days of 70 AD. Very same ones. You know, the Romans knew how to fight. You know, you have uh, surrounding the city, you take olive trees, and olive trees have oil. And they surround them, they pile them up against the walls. Those are all limestone. And you light them on fire, and they keep burning. And you cap all the water cisterns and everything else with huge boulders. And what do you do? You're building up steam. And when steam reaches a pressure point, and it blows like dynamite. And we think we're so smart about explosives today. Amazing. Notice in view that they were willfully ignorant about their appointed time because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the second mention of their visitation. 42 is the other one. Jerusalem had no excuse. She had the scriptures. Jerusalem had only responsibility and accountability to the measure of light it had received. And Jerusalem had chosen to become desolate until the coming of the Lord, Matthew twenty three thirty seven through thirty eight. Wow! You ever make a decision about something that you regret it for the rest of your life? Welcome to the club. Thank God for the grace of God. That's why people take their life. That's why people go crazy because they can't live with what they've done. And the sin gets heavier the older you get. If you don't do something about it. The only hope we have is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. To load off of you. By his grace. As you know Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Here's a beautiful parallel to Jesus Christ. Due to the broken heart and tears for Israel. Who constantly rejected God's word. Do you and I. Know our high privilege in Christ. It's easy to just take for granted. It's easy to forget the longer you walk. The measure of light and truth imparted to us that we were so lost and so dead. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Do you ever thank God that you are alive now? Do you really know how dead you were headed for hell? Hmm. The part we play in the church as He has enabled us to be effective... Are we aware of that? Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, doing our part that we not be tossed to and fro, growing, maturing. Everything motivated by God's love. The empowerment that is endowed to us by the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5, 18, continuously, if I will yield to it, if I will resort to it. Does Jesus weep over you and I and our neglect, maybe? 
maybe our indifference, our willful ignorance of the high privilege we have? Or does he rejoice as we serve him faithfully and lovingly, never perfect, but that our habit of life is him and him alone? Because he sees all things, Hebrews 12, 4, everything's open and naked. Are we aware of the things that make for our peace daily? Or are we willfully ignorant of that peace? If we are, then it's by the time that we study in God's Word. Spending time. We're praying, we're turning to Him. Being consistent in the church. Attending, serving. Being faithful as a servant. Doing everything out of God's love. But it begins with the Word of God. Do you spend time? I'm amazed that you guys put up with me for an hour teaching. And so are your friends. Some of you have been here 34 years. Now, I attribute that, that you're coming here hoping to hear Jesus speak to you. Because after 30 minutes, I get old. Uh, the time flies. I see you taking notes. I see you excited and all that. But today, there's no hunger for God's Word in the church. God prophesied in the Old Testament, I will send a famine in the land of the Word. Do you sit at home and go through five, ten chapters straight through as you go through the scriptures? Do you take that time and then wait upon the Lord and pray to Him? Do you take time to tear apart your Bible? Usually a Bible that's fallen apart belongs to someone who isn't. And one who's fallen apart belongs to one that isn't. It's just a correlation. God's Word today, the emergent church is indifferent to God's Word. It doesn't believe it can learn any objective truth. It's open to experience and into uh, things that are con. Contrary to scripture or beyond scripture. Mysticism and all. Are you ready for his coming? Are you aware of the scenario that's being set up? The countries, Russia, China, the Confederacy Islamic Nations to attack Israel. Are you aware of what's going on globally in our nation? How everything's being set up as a one world mindset. Money. Politics, everything. It's all over. Are you ready for His coming or will you weep at His coming? Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He shall direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Great counsel. Very simple. Very straightforward. Boy, there's a lifetime of protection right there. In those three verses. The weeping prophet was Jesus. Broken hearted. Notice thirdly comes the righteous priest. In 45 to 48. In 45, Jesus moved onto the temple now. The temple was the place of sacrifice and worship. The temple here, the word, indicates the entire temple complex. The cores, the buildings. And by the way, we have just gone from Sunday to Monday. This is the next day. Jesus never spent a night in Jerusalem the last week. He always went out and then came back in every day. The people of God had entered into a covenant with God, as you know, from the exodus of sacrifice and priesthood. And that's how they had access to God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, all the sacrifice pointed to Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, shadows and types to come, fulfilled in Him. And the abuse of the temple caused Jesus to empty the place out. He says He began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Now, there's nothing wrong with business, but, but business inside the house of God? <laughs> That's a contradiction. I think Jesus will walk into many churches today and turn them over too. Tables and everything else. There is so much merchandise in the people of God today. I, 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 I would, you don't mess with God's people. You don't mess with, with, with God's money. And, and, and you don't mess with His church. It's just, not, it's just not advisable. Jesus drove them out. Those who bought and sold in the temple. Referring to the exorbitant amount of money they were charging for things. In the sacrifices, they would have some already pre-approved. And of course, you would bring your lamb and, you know, you bought it for, let's say, a dollar. And all of a sudden, they would find a spot or a blemish. No, 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 you can't use it. You've got to buy one of ours. And now you're here. 
So, well, how much is yours? Five dollars. They just rake you through the coals. You know, it's like going to LAX, right? You want a hamburger and a Coke, it's twenty dollars. You go to Dodger game, you go to Lakers game, the same thing. They take advantage. You don't care because you're so unbonded that stuff. Who cares? It's interesting, isn't it? We complain about the, the salaries they pay these guys to dribble a ball or to chase a piece of pig. And we're the ones that flip the bill. If we didn't buy the tickets, they couldn't pay them their salary. So don't blame them. It's our fault. It's real simple. Now, I'm not against sports. I was an athlete all my life and all that. But, you know, when you look at it from that perspective... <laughs> What would happen if those guys really had to get a job? Amazing. He drove them out, cast them out, literally, to throw out from. The Sadducees were the wealthy materialists. They set up these booths. The priests had corrupted the temple. They would... um, absolve people of not helping their parents and they say, oh, just say it's Corbin. It's dedicated to the temple. A gift. And you're absolved from it. You don't have to take care of your parents, help them out financially. Woo, because they would benefit from this. The money changers. Again, if you've traveled, you've got to exchange your dollars for whatever it is, pounds or whatever it is where you go. And it's the greatest business in the world. You don't need factories. You don't need an inventory. You don't need nothing. They give you a, piece, a dollar, they give you a dollar, you say, I want them in two pounds, and they take a chunk of it and give you that. And it's possible to stay in the same window and chase them back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and by the time, after certain transactions, a number of them, you'll end up with nothing. That's what buying money is. That's why banking is so profitable. That little bit multiplied by hundreds of thousands is a lot. They know how to figure Figures don't lie, and liars sure can't figure. It's real simple. They were merchandising the things of God. This is the second cleansing. The first one came in this, and the beginning of his ministry in John two thirteen through sixteen. Nothing has changed. Now, notice in forty six, Jesus declared the true nature and function of the meeting place in the temple. The temple was God's house of prayer. It is written, my house is a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. The house of God would be called a house of prayer for all nations, prophetically. Jew or Gentile. It would be through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. One flock, one shepherd, Jesus said in John 10, 16. Ephesians 2.14, Jew and Gentile 1. The word prayer is prayer in general with the idea of worship and reverence, and it's always used for God, never of man. Prayer is man speaking and listening to God. The ratio speak for itself. I should listen twice as much as I speak. Prayer is to tap into the things of God, not to change the will of God. And yet, God will do things only through prayer, other things without prayer, and then still others in spite of prayer. You say, well, why pray? Just pray. Don't worry about it. Don't try to figure it out. You pray and God will take care of the rest. Prayer is intimate fellowship with a holy God. Prayer is a privilege of man towards God. Notice they had made it a place of evil profit, but you have made it a den of thieves. The sharp contrast cannot be missed by the word but. Express by prayer which indicate God gives. The theft, man takes. We are not givers. We are takers. God is a giver. When we become givers, something has happened to us. (laughs) Okay? Something miraculously. So the temple was a place where the people of God were to gather instead of becoming a place where evil people were hiding and profiting. This has happened in every generation and it still does. Very few things have changed. Look at 47 and 48. Jesus declared in the temple the ways of God to the people. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Jesus taught daily in the temple till 
he was arrested. As I said, he never stayed there overnight. He went outside the city, came back in every day to teach in the temple. He was plotted against daily. It was already in plans. They were going to make the appointment there with Judas and others. And um, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, all of them sought to destroy Jesus. And in 48, Jesus was untouched and received by the people and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. They were prohibited by the people's presence. There is an incredible, mysterious power that God allows to be present in the people of God and when the church is present. Light in the midst of darkness. There's a protectiveness for those around us and the world. If the church was removed, and when it is removed, it will be utter darkness. Have you ever been to some of those caves? that are so deep down, and then they shut the light, you can almost feel the darkness. That's what this world's going to be like the minute the rapture happens. If you think things are bad right now, the church is the only sense of breaks. Once the church is removed, all breaks will go out. All evil will prevail of every kind. The people were learning attentive. It's a strong verb. They could not tear themselves from him. This is the way it's to be with us as we read, as we come to church, as we minister the gospel. We find opportunities as we grow in maturity with the Lord. You remember one day Uzziah presumed upon the office of priest being king and he offered incense in the temple. And the Lord struck him with leprosy in Second Chronicles 26, 16 through 21. He had no business there as priest. Jesus is a fulfillment of the ultimate high priest. The order of Melchizedek. No one else. Are you using Christianity for your um, own profit? For your business? If you're a businessman and you put a fish on there, make sure it doesn't stink. Make sure you have integrity. Make sure you're a person of character. If you just use the prophet, God help you. You must be honest. You must have character. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. First Timothy 6, 6 says. There is a whole group of the church that believes that godliness is gain by the money that you have. That if you're, if you're wealthy, then, then that means you're godly. Where does it say that in the scripture? Nothing wrong with money, but, you know, the whole positive confession and, you know, nab it and grab it. You know, if you have enough faith, you won't be sick, healthy and wealthy, you know. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Are you using prayer to seek God and learn His Word? To find out and align yourself with the will of God in 1 John 4, 5.14. For your life's direction, for your marriage, for your children, for your dependency. That every level, as you are first are single, and then as you're married, you depend on the Lord. Then the children come, and then they're grown up, and it's just you and your wife again. And then the grandchildren come. Every level is a level that fits on top of the other one. But if the previous foundation has not been run right, then you're setting it on cracked foundation. God wants us to learn and to do so we have a strong foundation that we build upon. Are you opposing the rightful priesthood of Jesus? Maybe directing people in alternate ways. Today the church is very PC, politically correct. They don't want to offend nobody. Because, you know, when you minister to people, don't be argumentative. What do you mean you don't be argumentative? We want to have love in our heart, but there comes a time when you say, no, you're wrong. And I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to tell you. In the 70s, it was psychology through the 90s that was pushed upon the church. Inner healing, your inner child, the 12-step program, support groups. Some of those are still around, but not as much as then. And the church embraced them. In the 2000s, there's deliverance ministries that excuse your carnality and blame it on a demon. Crazy. 
contemplative prayer through the emergent church, mysticism, walking labyrinths, emptying your mind. Where does it say to empty your mind? You're opening yourself up to demons. The church embracing all this. Are you still hanging on to the old idols if you're an ex-Catholic, the virgin, the saints, all of that? Let them go. Demons behind those things. Ten Commandments, the first tablet. Have no other God. Bow down to no one. Make no image. Idolatry. Very, very clear. Do not point anybody except to Jesus. No one but Jesus. And so the righteous priest was Jesus. He's the go-between. You don't come through Jesus, you go straight to hell. If you die without him. But you don't have to go there. Remember we play Monopoly, go straight to jail? Okay. And there's no free passes. You don't get out of jail. You don't get out of hell. Okay? I don't care how many passes you think you have. Eternity is serious, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing to joke about. That decision is made on this side of death, not the other. And so Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, according to the scriptures, in fulfillment of his threefold office of Messiah, the triumphant king, the weeping prophet, and the righteous priest. Man, this prophecy, if this is the only prophecy we had, we would need nothing else. Nothing else. He fulfilled over 300. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Give us wisdom and direction and help us to look to you, no one else, Lord. Forgive us for our failings. Forgive us for our compromises. Forgive us for our willful ignorance and trusting ourselves, Lord, that we um, look to you and no one else. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought to you to be saved, to repent of your sins. He alone is the one that can do this for you, no one else. So if you believe what we've said about Jesus and what the text has said, then you can call upon Him right now. And He will save you. Maybe you're over the internet, right where you sit. You can accept Him right now. And He will forgive you, save you, and make you a son or daughter. You can repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.